Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Nathan Pankowski is with us today. He is the Director of Academic Programs at the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto, California. Uh, I, by the way, I, I was born in Palo Alto, uh, Nathan. <laughs> just, I didn't just, realize just that. that. Uh, he had an article, uh, a long article, on a book uh, in the review section in the November issue of First Things. And a few months before that, he had an essay entitled The Most Controversial Man in France. Uh, which we'll take as our springboard. Welcome, Nathan. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Now, the obvious question is, who is the most controversial man in France? Well, it's uh, Eric Zemmour. Uh, as, uh, as I wrote in the spring and as uh, the media, mainstream media um, in the English-speaking world is now picking up, um, he is uh, an interesting, um, uh, very dynamic, uh, very energetic, um, very intellectual uh, character. So I hope to cover all that. And he has set his sights on uh, the crown, uh, as it were, the uh, becoming uh, president of the republic, or at least uh, trying to transform the political landscape uh, in order to ensure that the kinds of ideas he's spoken about for most of his uh, career uh, become the the kinds of ideas that that everyone has to engage with, and then of course the the practical side of it, the the what must be done uh, question. So Zemmour, uh, what is uh, is that is born of a from a family of Algerian Jew, Jews, grew up in Paris, uh, did uh, very well um, in the French academic system, but not quite good enough to enter to, into the top school. He had ambitions. He was, he was an Algerian Jew, you said. Correct. Yeah. Huh. So, you know, uh, who, who went, uh, he, he didn't go, where, where did he go to school? So, um, so he went through the, he went through the tra trajectory in, in uh, Sciences Po, but in the French system, the, the, the top school, and it's especially important if you have uh, political ambitions, is the École Normale d'Administration, uh, l'ENA, um, and that's uh, very difficult to get into, um, but the, if you look at the school that the, that the presidents of the Republic have attended, um, it's it's that one. That's the one that uh, um, that that they attend. It's the kind of it's the top. It, you learn you learn the skills of being a good civil servant. You, you're support. It was set up by De Gaulle to basically uh, develop a centralized uh, uh, state apparatus for France um, to, to train a political elite. And in that sense, it's been successful. You have to get in that school almost to become one of the of the top uh, leaders, uh, not only in politics, but also in industry as well. But they're he did not the, make it that uh, far. The, the Normalien? <laughs> right. So, yeah, so that's uh, there, there's uh, some different branches, but essentially that's what um, that's what we're, we're talking about. Um, but yeah. he did not get in. And I think it's just a good um, it's a good question to to bear in mind. It's kind of a Felix culpa, as it were, because 
um, Zemmour's whole um, whole uh, intellectual practice as a journalist and as a writer has been to kind of excoriate the French elite for their failures over the course of yeah. of, um, of the past generation. I think uh, one, one I thing, imagine... Nathan, I think Jacques Derrida was an Algerian Jew who did get into the uh, Ecole Normale. Yeah, so he would have been uh, he would have been um, in the uh, ENS, uh, which is more um, humanistic, more focused on learning. The ENA, the LENA, is more of the is more for the political administrative side. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yes. So no, that's uh, quite right. Um, so it's an interesting Felix Culpa, I think, uh, because uh, had he entered into that top elite institution, I imagine it would have shaped his thinking in a much more. Uh, um, uh, to be much more along the lines of, of the way that the, the elite in, in France um, tend to think, what they're, the kind of habituated uh, patterns of thought, the kinds of orthodoxies that he has. And he shares none of that. I hope we can get into some of that today. I touched yeah. in the art, on the article in a few themes, but on ev- you know, every single major hot-button issue, whether it's, um, whether it's abortion, whether it's feminism, whether it's, uh, whether it's gay rights, whether just thinking about the events of May 1968, Zemmour is is uh, is very very critical of all those kinds of transformations, yeah. um, and uh, in many ways he prefigures uh, kinds of transformations that say took place um, or have taken place on the American right um, in the past say uh, five years. Uh, yeah. There's you know there's a one line in his 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 book that really um, vaulted him into the top. Uh, Tier of the French intellectual um, mediatic world, media world, um, the suicide français, um, and uh, there's one line in it, and I've never seen this in in an American, uh, you know, kind of a mainstream American writer until Christopher Caldwell's book, where he speaks about what happened to Nixon as uh, as more or less the the revenge of the elite against uh, universal suffrage, the revenge of the elite against the fact that the majority in the 72 election especially had uh, chosen a very different path from the way that the American elite wanted to go. And uh, he he wrote about that um, and uh, made it in a kind of a passing observation. Um, And uh, I think that's little examples like that. He's full of that. uh, Things that um, now become very almost ordinary ideas that, that we trade and, you know, especially in, in, in first thing circles yeah. uh, about elite, um, elite failure, um, but looking very dramatically about projects to replace one elite with another elite and the kind of old conservative bourgeois elite with the new kind of hip uh, May 68 elite, hmm. that kind of transformation. He spotted all those and, and wrote about them in, in very, uh, very direct terms. You you refer in the controversial article to the Le Souci Français as a it was a runaway bestseller in 2014. And one particular thing that it took on that you you, you didn't mention, but I wanted to ask you about this. You say in your article he challenged quote the ascent of judicial review, which happened in the 70s. What was the ascent of judicial review? Great. Yeah. So this is um, another example, I think, of of, uh, of a kind of uh, the foresight that that he's had. Um, and so uh, more or less uh, what happened in in uh, in 1971, um, in the summer of 1971, is more or less the equivalent of the kind of Mulberry v. Madison 
case, but in the French context. Now, what was a little bit more radical about um, about it in the French context is that uh, the 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 French court um, was not supposed to have a position of 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 uh, strict judicial review. Kind of, it had a it had a uh, there was a there was a um, there was a court that was set up to more or less um, ensure that the constitution was operated the way it should, but it was supposed to defer to popular sovereignty. Um, so famously in 1962, um, de Gaulle forced uh, you know, a, a legally dubious uh, referendum um, on uh, changing the constitution to have the direct election of the president. And to force the hand of the court, he posed it as a referendum and so the other and won the referendum in a massive uh, landslide. And the court said, well, we can't presume to be more competent on this issue than the people. So the courts, the court more or less said, we are not the we are not um, supreme in the country. The 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 people are supreme. And in 71, um, there was a, a famous case that, that changed this. And what happened was the court more or less it struck down a law that um, the the uh, the assembly had passed by reading in the text of the Declaration of the Rights and Man of the Citizen into the Constitution. So beforehand, it had been, uh, there was a mention to it in the preamble. And they said, not only do we strike down this law here, but we strike it down by breaking with past precedent and reading in the whole text of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and saying that is all supposed to apply. And the court has the authority to apply that. And obviously, that just opens the door to all kinds of um, judicial activism in, in and uh, innovation, the kinds of things that Americans are very familiar with. Um, and uh, that's sort of the, the moment in, in 1971 where, where that happened. And after that, you see the cases building out more and more and more. There's been many famous cases in, in the French legal setting wherein uh, the assembly tries to do something, say, about um, immigration, passing law, and the court comes back and says, no, no, you can't do that, and they strike down the law on the basis of reading more and more text into the Constitution that was not supposed to be there under the under the Constitution of 58 and the way the institutions were supposed to work, uh, the court did not was not supposed to have that power, and all that changed in 71. So he has some he has some very uh, visceral passages about that transformation. And what is the suicide that is taking place? The suicide is the replacement of. An older elite that loved its country was one that is ashamed of it, hmm. one that despises it, and one that that actively seeks its its uh, its its destruction. Um, whether it's the dissolution into a European project, whether it's kind of the theorization about how great, um, say, mass immigration is um, in terms of how it's going to change the complexities of the country, it's also a, a separation of. France from its past. And that, I think, is, is something Zimul strikes, strikes a lot. And it's a source of his popularity is that he's always trying to reconnect what's going on in French politics with uh, the history of the country. And uh, the, the, the people um, who, who uh, oppose him most strenuously, I think, uh, um, uh, the, most particularly the progressives, most particularly the, the kind of the, the great representatives of 68, are constantly trying to uh, keep that rupture from the past preserved. No, history was once tragic, it once had this form, but no longer. Uh, we've moved into a new era. 
So the suicide is, is all those things. And it's also a regime suicide, too, I think. This is something that makes Zemmour's politics a little hard to pin down on a lot of things, is he uh, defends a lot of the accomplishments that the Republic had, uh, defends a lot of the accomplishments that, um, that uh, Napoleon had, and defends a lot of the things that the revolution did. Um, and uh, we sometimes see, and we'll see more and more as his, as his, uh, as his star rises, you know, the, the kind of hit pieces that come out with saying he's a man of the extreme right and, and so forth. Um, it, the, the trouble with those, and there's lots of troubles with those kinds of setup, but you really, to understand what he's saying and understand what he's doing, you have to understand him as someone who's borrowing ideas from the left and the right together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Suicide Francais, um, the, one of the interesting aspects of the book is it's more or less a defense of a, of a kind of uh, what's called the Gallo-Communisme, the, the synthesis uh, that took place immediately after the Second World War, the idea that the communists and the Gaullists had similar objectives. They were both nationalists, they both took national sovereignty seriously, and they'd both been the, the principal camps that participated in the resistance. So they had the capacity to... Uh, to rebuild the country, they had the energy to do so, and the way to make it work, the way de Gaulle made it work, was to ensure that more or less the the, the Gaullists cooperated with the um, extreme left because they agreed about the importance of popular sovereignty and national sovereignty. And Zemmour praises that. He, he doesn't, uh, in, especially in Suicide Francaise, he praises that and and uh, it looks back to that era as as something that uh, accomplished a lot and was destroyed by the progressives of May 68. So that the, generation the, the, the post-war communists, he said they were nationalists. They weren't internationalists? They weren't taking orders from Moscow? So that's, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of points where we could probe Zimbabwe's history a little, a little tighter. But I think um, his, his point that he wants to say is when the communists decided to engage in resistance, remember, the before then, they, they had received the order from Moscow not to engage in resistance because of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. The communists in 1940 were not working for resistance and supported the, supported the armistice uh, on Moscow's orders. But once, uh, once Hitler invaded um, the Soviet Union, and the orders changed. And then the communist movement really became a kind of lightning rod for nationalist sentiment. And that made their position in 1945 very, very strong. And the communists knew that. They knew that their strength, at least the French communists, knew that their strength didn't rest on, on kind of tepid internationalism, but it rested on, on that kind of, of a very strong uh, populist politics, po- uh, very strong nationalist politics. And that was the base of the party. It's interesting to contrast them to the French socialists here, um, because someone like Mitterrand, um, who started off with Vichy but then moved his way over to the socialist camp, um, he, if he has one uh, kind of idée fixe, if he has one uh, fixed idea in his in his whole political career, well, there are two. One is hatred of de Gaulle. He hated uh, Charles de Gaulle. But the second one is this kind of pro-European commitment, this idea that we're going to participate in this common uh, democratic project that is going to bring all the countries together. That's very much the French socialist uh, mentality. And the communists rejected that. The communists saw that as a, as a more or less an excuse for imperialism. Uh, and, that, and the best way to fight against that kind of imperialism, that kind of pan-European imperialism, which they thought would just ultimately be the service of the United States. Uh, Zemmour uh, uh, has some sympathies with that idea, I think, um, quite a bit. Um, but the best remedy against national against uh, in, against uh, this that kind of imperialism is nationalism and a vigorous defense of popular sovereignty. 
Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, you, you note that it was a big popular bestseller uh, when he first argued this in 2014. How did the elite respond to this? How aggressive were they in going after Zamor? Oh, well, it's certainly been, uh, I think, a whirlwind for him. I mean, one problem uh, with the, the transformation of the French legal system that we've seen that we were alluding to earlier is how easy it is to weaponize the law uh, to go after people like Zemmour. So he was he was uh, more or less put on trial for sections of, of uh, that book. Um, I referred to it in the article, the sections about Vichy. Uh, and the equivalent in, in kind of English speaking world will be on hate speech grounds. And um, there's also a vague law, a vague law that that's uh, that talks about what, um, uh, denying uh, crime against humanity. These kinds of these vague, um, ambiguous uh, legal doctrines that exist in France are really an invitation for um, for one's opponents to go after you. And it's important to see, too, in the French system that a third party can bring this challenge in. So it's not like if I'd been personally slandered then in, a, in a, uh, a book, then I might be able to bring a charge. If I had, or someone had, say, invited an attack against me, saying, oh, we should go out and, and, uh, and uh, kill um, Nathan Minkowski, uh, you know, there might be grounds for a kind of uh, suit in that situation. Um, but in the French context, a third party that is completely unaffected uh, can bring these suits forward, which gives them a lot of power and gives a lot of power, obviously, to the kinds of organizations that want to destroy Zemmour, well-funded uh, NGO type organizations um, can bring these legal cases forward uh, almost at will. And that's what they've been doing um, more or less since the since the publication of, of that book. And they'll continue to do, by the way, because he's now running for president. Um, they'll they'll be using all kinds of tricks to to do that. They already did one in the summer um, with respect to French uh, media laws that more or less forced him off the air of the show that uh, he'd been on um, because they invented a new clause whereby he, despite the fact that he wasn't an official candidate, they, they said, well, we're going to treat him like an official candidate, which had never been done before by the media body. So they're inventing new rules to weaken his, his political influence, to, to reduce um, the audience he can reach. You note that he now commands a political base that is twice the size of France's Socialist Party. Uh, have the elite attacks upon him increased popular support for him would you say i think so uh, i think they they definitely they definitely do i think the problem that he faces is less um the problem that he faces is that to do what he's trying to do which is i think there's there's three broad things he's trying to do one is just expand the overton window of of uh, of french politics to make sure that things that have been stated as beyond the pale are brought into the into the mainstream more and here um, the immigration issue of course the uh, the issue of um, of national identity the issue of clash of civilizations all very important 
um, in that sense. So there's one that's expanding the Overton window side of it. But and this, the second side, though, is in terms of unifying the right. Because the French right more or less agrees on the, the issues. I mean, France is really quite a right-wing country when you look at polling, say, on immigration. Or one of my favorite statistics um, is about if you poll uh, if you poll people um, opposed to who think that Islamo-gauchisme, the kind of leftist is Islamism, um, is a problem. Um, you, you, with uh, people who are on the right, it's something like 80, 90 percent. You think, OK, well, on the right, sure, you would recognize that maybe there's a problem with this kind of politically correct support of uh, Islam. But then if you go to the left, it's also very high, 70 percent. Um, so just the, the, so the, um, there's a lot of these support on the you know, socially, uh, popularly for the ideas that Zimur has. But the problem is, is that there's so much division. There's so many different little parties, and they're very entrenched and have strong basis of support, whether it's Marine Le Pen, whether it's the, the kind of um, uh, vaguely conservative uh, French party, Les Républicains. And those are the people who are going to, I think, be in the, over the next month or two, the real challenge for Zemmour. So it's less about the attacks he's going to receive in the media. It's going to be about the attacks that he's going to receive from the right party elite, the kind of established right uh, party elite. And that might, um, then those attacks will get aggressive. Uh, the, the more or less, they, they'll use the kind of argument, well, he's not fit to be president. Uh, he has no political career. Um, he's sort of just like a wild card. Who knows what he's going to say next? Uh, what provocation he's going to deliver? Those will be the strongest attacks, um, I think, to, to watch for. So as I, as I said, I think despite the fact that he's probably going to be quite successful in expanding the Overton window, the, the second, the real obstacle that uh, over the next month or two will be: Can he secure enough of a political base by drawing off supporters of the other right-wing parties to uh, be a contender in the spring for um, for the presidency to make it to the second round? Because the French have the two the two voting round systems, and you need more or less, you know, you, you need to be polling about twenty percent and. Up to have a shot at uh, at making it to the second round. Uh, he finds the quote dream of Muslim integration just that a dream, completely unrealistic. But if the elite keep pursuing this dream, he says that France is going to rediscover the wars of religion. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, look. Uh, when he speaks in interviews about, say, foreign policy, he doesn't jump into into very particular points about, say, you know, France needs to pursue this this uh, this policy priority here. We need to tighten our alliance with this country here. We need to distance ourselves from this. He goes right to Samuel Huntington uh, level. Um, what are the civilizations that exist in the world? Which civilization are we part of? And then from that, he he extrapolates about the tensions and challenges that exist between particular civilizations. So what he's doing when he says things like that, I mean, and, and this is something, again, that I think it's important for listeners to watch out for as the, as the mainstream kind of hit pieces attack um, him. Um, not so much, look, there, there, there are political reasons to go back and forth in political critique, but if you want to understand him, you have to see those kinds of statements, not just as empty provocations or kind of... Uh, of um, Historionics, you have to see them as someone who's connecting what's going on in Europe to uh, civilizational level tensions, 
uh, to understanding what is the trajectory of certain civilizations and the way they might be in tension or ultimately in conflict with one another. So you have to see them as connecting it to ideas that uh, Huntington had. And that's certainly important. He cites Huntington. He also cites Carl Schmitt as well. And I think what's particularly important in that aspect is Schmitt's ideas about um, uh, about the transformation of the ordering of the earth that comes through um, through uh, imperial projects, really. Uh, in one of uh, Zimbo's recent interviews, he refers explicitly to uh, Land and Sea, um, one of Schmidt's lesser-known works, which just came out a few years ago in Tilo's Press, um, worth reading. So this aspect of empires and how empires move into conflict back and forth and where a small second power like France fits in in that are all very important for Zemmour. And that's what gives context to those kinds of statements about uh, falling back into the war of religion. Now, uh, we talk criticism of the left. You also note a speech he gave in September 2019, uh, a big convention of people on the right. And I remember reading uh, portions of that speech when it was publicized. It was quite a sensation, uh, in, including the statement saying to all the, the people on the right in the room, you are not really serious. Yeah. What, 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 was the, what was the main content of that speech? So I think it was, uh, I think the main content of the speech and the way to understand it is is uh, sort of what I've been saying about understanding the problems that face that face um, the French nation and the French state as as being one that are ultimately best understood at a civilizational level, uh, and at this and um, if you then are able to grasp that, then you have to recognize that most of these little policy uh, questions here and there, these little quibbles about. Um, Things that the Macron government uh, does uh, and has been doing more and more in the past few years, trying to crack down on on uh, illegal immigration here and there, you know, get rid of a few hundred people who are who are um, camped out illegally in Calais, uh, maybe do a few high profile deportations here and here, you know, say some aggressive things against American style political correctness. Now, these are all these are all uh, just sort of. Uh, little policy details. And if you really want to be serious about addressing the root cause of these problems, you have to have that civilizational perspective. So I see that speech as a, a kind of um, a deft exercise in metapolitics, um, in trying to uh, in trying to uh, change the kind of, of, of recognition of the political cultural landscape. Um, that many people uh, on the French right, you know, also relevant to closer to home uh, as well on the American right, um, haven't grasped when they think mostly about economic questions, when they think mostly about particular kind of wedge issue policy questions, all those things get lost. Uh, all, of those, all those things distract from the, the civilizational metapolitical question. And what I think made that speech particularly effective was its, was its metapolitics. And that's why uh, it was so... Uh, admired and received the attention that that it did, and really vaulted him into the top tier, where he's able to uh, where he's able to to set up a presidential campaign. It seems to me, from your essay and other evidence, that one of the reasons for his popularity is that he is so good in debating left wing intellectuals who maybe in the past seem to have had all the all, all the all the moral energy on their side. He debates them, and you have you have an example here. He he beats them pretty soundly, doesn't he? Oh yeah, and I think it's also what's what's particularly effective is 
how he undermines some of their, their basic premises about the direction of history. So I'll give one example um, that I think is, is particularly important and may get, um, may get lost a bit here and there. So he's extremely critical of, of the abortion regime um, in the world. Now, what, there's different ways to be critical about abortion. And the strongest point, I think, um, just analytically, is intentional killing of innocents, right? Um, but he sets this up as within a whole feministic paradigm, a whole feminist paradigm about the direction of history, a kind of historical conquests. You know, back then we were all in the dark ages, but now we've entered into a new world. And he uses two examples that I think are very, very effective for just undermining this worldview. So he says, so he says, well, what is abortion? Abortion is the is the woman saying that. She has, uh, of course, her, her body belongs to her, my body, my choice. But she's also saying that I have the right to life and death over my child. And he just puts that in perspective. He says, well, you're claiming the same thing that men in a highly patriarchal society like ancient Rome claim. The paterfamilias had the right of life and death over his children. That's what it was to be in ancient Rome, a paterfamilias. And what's feminism done? Well, they've just moved it to a, a new referent, right? Now it's the, it's the woman who has that right of life and death over her or child. And another example, too, that he gives on this point is, again, thinking about, about how progressive assumptions about history always getting better and better are false. So he'll point out that nowadays in France, there's about one abortion for every five births. And that's the same as the rate of infant mortality under Louis XV. Hmm. So you think, you think you've had progress. You think you've, you've had a kind of historical conquest. But in fact you have regression. Now, they've gone after him with the anti-hate speech laws. They've won some judgments against him. Have free speech liberals in France come to his defense? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a mixed bag, as it often is with that crowd. But the the uh, one of the, the journalists who worked with his show, worked with him, who, who, the show that he was part of, Christine Kelly, um, she has been quite vocal uh, defending him, and there have been a few other people who've been uh, trying to defend him too. I think what shocked a lot of people um, in the summer was the sense that someone who's a journalist, a kind of a television character, is now going to be subject to laws as if they were an official politician that had announced and had a, a campaign. I mean, he hadn't at that point um, had, and he still, by the way, hasn't, at least when we're recording this, he hasn't officially announced. But you can't set up one rule. For, uh, for one single person, invent a new rule, and then apply it like that. And that that's just the very definition of, 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 uh, of legal arbitrariness. And when that took place, um, there was a lot of pushback in the journalistic world, because obviously every major journalist, political pundit, um, analyst looks at that and says, well, is that going to be applied to me in the future? Because I tend to talk mostly about politics, because I tend to editorialize on air or in print. I'm going to be treated like a, a political candidate. Am I writing time, airtime is suddenly going to be limited. And it's a really dangerous precedent what happened. And as a result, uh, there, a few people did speak out in defense of him on that point. Uh, last question. Uh, has the pandemic and also the, the government's uh, reaction to the pandemic helped Zamour or hurt him as a, a political prospect? So that's a good question. I think I think it, it, um, it, the danger is that it distracts from the metapolitical issue that he wants to identify. 
And this is something that might mean that Marine Le Pen will keep the upper hand because she has an established party. She has uh, a loyal um, elite of supporters around her, you know, even if her prospects as a, as a presidential candidate are, um, you know, she's not likely to win the race because people don't like her last name. Also worth pointing out that a lot of people don't trust her um, on the right. They think she's she's uh, she's there to win rather than there to, to change the rules of the game. Uh, and if you talk to uh, to younger French writers, that's one of the things that they worry about, that she's she's uh, she's a kind of not just a transactional politician, but she'll change her ideas uh, on the dime because she really wants to win the, the presidency. And she spotted very well that the vaccine passports are, uh, are, are a winning political issue for her. I mean, France has had some of the largest um, protests against them. Um, they're they're enforced and very in very intermittent ways. The government is on extremely thin ice legally for it, of course. Well, thin ice is, uh, is, even, is even generous um, in that sense. So, so it can, that issue, uh, whether it be um, vaccine passports, whether it be the, the, the kind of um, governmental response, are all things that could distract from the metapolitical issue. That said, though, I, I just want to say that he had identified some of these things uh, in his earlier work, some of these trends about uh, about uh, the way that um, biopolitical transformation um, has changed politics in a negative direction. I mean, he actually, so na- nowadays in some circles in the American right, it's become uh, fashionable to cite Foucault. You know, Foucault is, uh, as the young people say, based uh, because he he spotted the dangers of biotyranny, of biopower. And uh, Zemmour did this uh, in some of his earlier writings. Uh, it comes up also in Le Suicide Francais. So he has the, the intellectual apparatus to engage with this, with this problem. Um, but of course, uh, it's, it's something that uh, a more established seasoned politician uh, could be in a better position to capitalize on than um, a, a kind of public intellectual um, journalistic figure like Zemmour. Nathan Pikoski, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.